Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year to you. It's a joy to be with you this morning and open God's Word. If you have a copy of God's Word, I do invite you to turn to Hebrews 11. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning as we continue our way through the wonderful book of Hebrews. Uh, as I was uh, sermon writing the last couple of weeks, I happened to run into some Rivermont members at Starbucks. And uh, I know it's a hard thing to imagine in a town like this. Uh, they were having a conversation with a college student they had met there named uh, Maddie. And, and once they saw me, uh, they invited me over to meet Maddie. And I soon learned that Maddie had recently moved to Lynchburg. She had no job or particular purpose for coming, just a sense that the Holy Spirit was prompting her to come. She had enjoyed what had been for her a wilderness experience, away from the, the noise and the distraction from where she had come from. She's grown, she said, to appreciate the quiet of this time in her life and the ways that God has met her in this wilderness, and she's still in the wilderness. She's not home yet. And Maddie's not the only one who's experienced a move like that. Just last week, we were reminded of the move that Abraham and Sarah made, a move that was prompted by God's call and fueled by three extraordinary promises, each promise more unbelievable than the other. The promise of a great land that was already occupied. The promise of a great nation from a barren woman. And the promise of a great name to an unknown rancher and shepherd. What's even more unbelievable than these promises was their faith in those promises. Abraham and Sarah believed God could and more importantly would fulfill these promises. Even if they didn't know how. Even if they didn't know when, even if it wasn't in their lifetime. And God was gracious to give them glimpses of these promises being fulfilled. In particular, we know that God opened Sarah's womb at the age of 90 and she gave birth to Isaac. He would be that start of a great nation. Together they held on to God's promises for dear life even to the day they died. And that belief carried on through Isaac as God gave him glimpses of fulfilled promises. And he too believed that God would fulfill his promise to the day he died. And that belief carried on through Jacob who saw even more glimpses. And he believed those promises to the day he died. Each patriarch saw God's faithfulness to his promises even though they were glimpses. And they lived with death-defying faith. A faith that even death could not end. How might we do that as well? How might we live with a death-defying faith? Well, let's look to our text and find out this morning. Again, Hebrews 11. I'll begin reading in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. 
Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray. Oh God, as we are on the doorstep of a new year, we are reminded once again, oh God, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and it is a light unto our path. Would you guide us not only in this hour of worship but in each and every moment of our lives in the coming year, that we would know more of your word and that we would treasure that word and that we would live faithfully under that word, we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. When we welcome a class of new members, we usually gather for a meal together. Following that meal, we usually ask the group this question. What makes Rivermont the kind of church you're excited to join? And I've been privileged to hear a variety of answers over the last 10 plus years. And sometimes the pastors that are in attendance of that dinner get to answer that question as well. And one of the answers that I usually give when I'm asked is this. I'm blessed by the way our saints die well. Now I recognize that may sound morbid, but it's true. And what I mean by that is that their eyes, the saints' eyes, are fixed firmly on Jesus. As they face their death, their faith in Christ and his promises are strong. Even the promises that he has not yet fulfilled. They depart this life unencumbered and it gives me great hope and encouragement for my own eventual death. It is very much a death-defying faith and I want that for my life and I trust that you do as well. And so knowing that, the writer gives us three ways that we can live with death-defying faith in our passage this morning. And the first thing that we'll see is that by faith, that we live as strangers and exiles. Now the moment Abraham and Sarah left their ancestral home of Ur, they became strangers and exiles. But what exactly did that mean? Well, as you might guess, to be a stranger meant that you were an outsider or a foreigner. You were not a native or a citizen, which meant that you didn't know the culture, you didn't understand the culture, and therefore you had no standing in that culture. And as they traveled to Haran and to eventually Canaan, they were foreigners. And that makes sense. But what about being exiles? To be an exile sounds like forced relocation. And in some places it is that, but that's not what is meant here. The word for exile is best understood here as sojourner, which is simply a traveler who is passing through. They are only there temporarily. If you've been on vacation for a week or a work trip for a month or maybe been away uh, to college for a semester, you were there as sojourners, as exiles. You didn't become residents. You were only there temporarily because your home was here in Lynchburg. And yet even when Abraham and Sarah had finally settled in Canaan, the land that was to become their new ancestral home, they were still strangers and exiles there. Now, how were they strangers and exiles in this land that God had brought them to? Well, because living as strangers and exiles wasn't just a status, it was a mindset. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Notice that those who died in faith, that would have been Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Not as a cultural or geographical reality, but as a spiritual reality. They did not belong to the kingdom of this world, but to the kingdom of God. The values of the kingdom of this world were in complete opposition to God's kingdom. Living in Canaan was a grim reminder of that. The Canaanites followed a multitude of greater and lesser gods. Gods that sanctioned detestable practices like cult prostitution and child sacrifice. Practices that profaned God's name and dehumanized people. Abraham and Sarah believed and trusted in the one true God, Yahweh, who is light and life. The God who created the gift of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. The God who brings life from the womb and protects and preserves it. All that he does serves to glorify his image in his people. And Abraham and Sarah and their children and their grandchildren were strangers and exiles and they felt it. They lived it. They experienced it and so must we. By faith we must see that we too are strangers and exiles here. Whether you grew up in Lynchburg or you moved here a month ago, you are a stranger and exile here. This is not your home, and we should not feel at home here. As beautiful as Lynchburg is, and it is beautiful, this is not heaven. This is not our home. And you may feel it culturally, but you must believe it spiritually. And this is not easy. Because the enemy of your soul doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to feel that you are a stranger or an exile here. He wants you to feel at home here. To feel settled, to feel rooted to this world. One of the great strengths of our country is prosperity. And yet I fear it quite possibly our greatest weakness. Our greatest hindrance from seeing that we are but strangers and exiles. And I know few who can illustrate this as well as C.S. Lewis does in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Lewis was a great letter writer himself, and he uses a fictional series of letters between a senior devil named Screwtape and a junior devil named Wormwood. And in these back and forth letters, we see the underbelly of the demonic world, how it seeks to keep one from faith or destroy faith in one who has it. In one of his letters, he proposes the use of prosperity to undo his patient's faith. Listen to these words. He writes, prosperity knits a man to this world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work build up in him a sense of being really at home in earth, which is just what we want. You will notice that the young are generally more willing to die than the middle-aged and the old. 
You see, our enemy takes the blessing of God, which is human flourishing and prosperity, and he turns it inward. He turns it and corrupts it so that we love the blessing of God more than God himself. That we worship the created world rather than worship the creator himself. And this is the nature of idolatry, which grips every person's soul. And yet the opposite can also be true. We can love God, yet despise the created world, reject it because of its corruption, because it doesn't love or cherish God. We can use being strangers and exiles as an excuse to withdraw from the world, to let the world continue its downward spiral. After all, we're only sojourners. If this world isn't our home, are we really obligated to care for our neighborhood or our city or our world? The Jewish exiles in Babylon felt the same way. They thought that they would just wait out their exile and keep to themselves. But God had different plans. He said to them in Jeremiah 29, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You see, they had every right to withdraw from Babylon. They were, after all, their captors. Their enemies had destroyed their city and killed many of their people. Why should they care what happens to Babylon? Because God cares what happens to Babylon. It was Judah's sin that led them into captivity, yet it is God's love that would lead Babylon to revival, to spiritual flourishing, and that would happen as they lived as strangers and exiles. And doesn't God call us to the same thing? Are we not strangers and exiles by faith, called to live, called to bring blessing to our neighborhood, to our city? To join with Jesus Christ on his mission to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. My friends, it takes such faith to believe this. You see, we live in the daily tension of being in the world but not of the world. Of living in a prosperity that would knit us to the world and a piety that would keep us from the world. It is only by faith that we can see ourselves rightly as strangers and exiles. And yet no one wants to remain a stranger or exile. In fact, we were not made for that. We were made for a homeland. And yet as verses 14 through 16 remind us, it can't just be any homeland. For people, verse 14, who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is... They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Abraham and Sarah had made a life in Ur, a a good life, at least by worldly standards. Ur was a prosperous place and far more advanced than Canaan would have been. And yet while Ur may have been Abraham's ancestral home, it was not the true homeland he sought or was made for. 
And when Abraham and Sarah arrived in Canaan, they established a new home there. And they lived even more prosperously there than they had when they were in Ur. And yet they were still not truly home. They were strangers and exiles there. And while they may have enjoyed greater prosperity, life was decidedly hard given what we've already said about Canaan. And had their faith not been fixed on a future homeland, they would surely have thought of returning to Ur. There they were known by family and friends. There they had the comfort and security of home. And while these are indicative of our feelings of home, a homeland is so much more. You see, homeland is not so much a place or even an address as it is an identity. The word for homeland here is patris, and its, used in the, and its use in the New Testament is rare. Commentators note that patris means more than a place of habitation. It means a fatherland where the nation can find its roots, its identity, its sense of belonging. For example... I grew up in Mississippi. I spent the first 23 years of my life there. I was a Mississippian through and through. And do you know where I felt most at home? In Mississippi. Why? Because Mississippi was my fatherland. It's where I belonged. And every time I crossed the state line into Mississippi, a sense of relief came over me. I was home. And I've been in Virginia now 10 years, and I'm not sure how long I need to live in Virginia to be a Virginian, but I I do feel like a Virginian. And do you know where I am now most at home? In Virginia. And yet my identity is deeper than that, isn't it? Because I'm a Christian. And where does a Christian feel most at home? In Virginia. Christ. My roots lie in Christ. My identity is established in Christ. My sense of belonging, my sense of belovedness is in Christ. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that for us to really be home, to really be at home, we must be in Christ and he must be in us. He is our homeland and will bring us to his home in heaven. Jesus himself spoke of that reality in John 14. Speaking to his disciples, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And if heaven is where Christ dwells, that's where our homeland is. That's where we will feel at home fully and finally. And this is the better country Hebrews speaks of in verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Even from afar, Abraham and Sarah, along with Isaac and Jacob, believed the better country was a heavenly one, and they welcomed it. They knew their search for the better country, the better homeland, could not be found here. And I think maybe this is what is so grievous about the latest struggle between Israel and Hamas 
the struggle to occupy their homeland, the land of blessing, the land of promise, but they can't see the truth. They can't see what the, their patriarch saw from a distance. They can't see that their true homeland is in Christ who is in heaven. And the only way Abraham and Sarah could experience that better country, the only way for them to truly come home was in death. And the only way you and I will be able to occupy our true home in Christ will be through death. That is the doorway home, which is why our Rivermont saints die so well. They can die with such faith and confidence because they know they are almost home. Since I quoted Lewis regarding the work of the devil, let me quote him again regarding his description of heaven as home. This comes in his last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, The Last Battle. Old Narnia has now passed away and the new Narnia has come. And those who came into the new Narnia, they were speechless as they beheld the beauty, the, the glory, the, the substantiveness of the new Narnia. And then Jewel the Unicorn broke the silence and summed up what everyone was feeling. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. Where are you seeking a homeland? Where are you seeking your identity, your roots? Is it in Lynchburg? Is it in your work? Is it in your wealth? Is it in your athletic skill? If it's not in Christ, you will never truly be home. For you, in fact, death will be feared because it signals the destruction of the home that you've built, which was never your real home to begin with. But if by faith you are living for a future homeland, if you are living with a death-defying faith that is in Christ, that welcomes death as the doorway home to Christ, you will experience what all of your desires and all of your longings have always been pointing to, which is a heavenly homeland in Christ. And so we live by faith in this world as strangers and exiles. Strangers and exiles who are also living by faith for a future homeland. And finally, as strangers and exiles living for a future homeland, we also live by faith in light of God's approval. If you look in verse 16, the writer of Abraham, or the writer says of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. How did the writer know that? How did he know that God was not ashamed to be called their God? Because all throughout the Old and New Testament, God referred to himself as who? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He was not ashamed to be called their God. And not only God referred to them that way, but so did Moses and Elijah and David and Jesus and Peter. Why was God not ashamed to be their God? Well, it wasn't because they lived perfect lives. Far from it. The Old Testament doesn't hide the weaknesses of the patriarchs. 
It doesn't cover over them. It doesn't cover over Hagar and Ishmael. It doesn't cover over Isaac's favoritism or Jacob's deceit of Esau and Isaac. So then how was God not ashamed to be their God? Is the writer choosing to ignore their sin? No, but he is singling out their faith in God's promises. He's saying, yes, there are plenty of examples of their sinfulness, but that doesn't define them. Their faith in God's promises is what defines them, and that is incredibly encouraging to me. And here's why this is encouraging. It's because that's not how the world works, and you know this. The world sees the nine things that you may do right and the one thing that you do wrong And rather than celebrate the nine things that you do right, they point out the one thing that you do wrong and say, that's who you really are. That's the sum total of your life, that one thing you did wrong. But in Christ, God looks at us differently. He sees the nine things we've done wrong and the one thing we've done right. And rather than point out the nine things that we did wrong, he singles out and celebrates the one thing that we did right. And he says, that's who you are. You see, our approval before God is not based on our work, but on Christ's work. And as we trust in that work, as we live with death-defying faith in the promises of God, he is not ashamed to be our God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will also be the God of Michael, the God of Jennifer, the God of Andy, the God of Eleanor. We are strangers and exiles. This is not our true home. We believe what the Apostle Peter said to the elect exiles in his letter. Exiles that had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. That you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, your real prosperity is not here. It is in heaven. It is kept there to be given at the last time. And how will you and I receive it? Through God's power, which is, now now get this, which is guarding your salvation through faith. It is God's power that is sustaining your faith, that is preserving your faith, that is championing your faith, as a stranger and exile, so that it will not falter, so that it will persevere to the end, so that you will receive the inheritance of life everlasting, so that you will be fully and finally home. Let's pray. Oh God, we do desire to be home, and not just to be home, but to be at home, and we know that the only person and the only place that we can be at home is in Christ. And oh Lord, would you put that truth in the uppermost part of our mind? Would it be the very guiding thought of our affections that we would live in this new year with that promise that is before us that Christ will take us home to be with him Oh, Lord, sustain us by your power as we wait patiently. 
We pray all of this in the powerful and the strong, in the homecoming name of Jesus Christ. Amen.